So we've got to get out of zero sum politics. We have to have a politics of choice that allows more than two. We have to have a fair reflection of the spectrum of differences that are very real within us that are more nuanced than just red versus blue, one side versus the other. And you can't do that within a single choice, single member district. It's really hard to do that. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Rob Ritchie, is the founder and executive director of Fair Vote. Rob is a longtime leading advocate for electoral reform in the United States. I've been aware of since my 20s, and I want to hear his story and that of his organization, as well as learn about what his group is up to currently. If you're frustrated by our current electoral system, you should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Rob at Fair Vote. Hey, great Battlefield listeners. My name is Jenna Spinelli, and I host a podcast called Democracy Works. It's a show that examines what it means to live in a democracy and how we continue to sustain a healthy democracy amid challenges like misinformation and polarization. Recently, we've talked with Liliana Mason about radical American partisanship and with Peter Pomerantsev about how democracies can win the war on reality. If you enjoy the Great Battlefields discussion with people working to advance democracy on the ground, I think you'll enjoy our conversations about why this work is so important. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Find it at democracyworkspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Rob. Hello. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I am Rob Ritchie. I am president and CEO of FairVote. Uh, FairVote has been around for almost 30 years, and I've been there the whole time and seen a lot in, that's happened in the democracy space. Uh, we have been a part of some of the big structural reform conversations that have started to happen more and more and really need to happen um, about the Electoral College, voter registration. But the core focus for us is our methods of elections and how we turn votes into seats. And there is a lot of different ways we actually do it at the local level in the United States, some at the state level, and then a lot of different ways around the world. And it's a conversation we think is very ripe for national elections, congressional elections, involving changing the single choice ballot to ranked choice voting, single member districts to a form of proportional voting, and really thinking about making sure that it's not just, just about voting, which of course is important, but about having real choices and having our chance to help elect the candidates we like. It's a it's a really important area and pivotal potentially for how we're governed, but it's a pretty niche area to to put your whole career into. Tell me a little bit about uh, how you grew up, where, and and what kind of family. Well, it's interesting, Nick, because part of what we believe in is that the geographic definition of oneself is not the, the the primary definition. Where you live is not more important than what you think, and maybe that's rooted in the fact that I grew up in a National Park Service family where they treat you a little bit like a military family. You move to different national parks with your with your parents. And so uh, lived in a lot of different parts of the country. And along the way, kind of developed an appreciation for the wild and the environment and was, I think, a youthful environmentalist in, in the 80s and made a leap into politics actually through my wife, who at that time was just my girlfriend, Cynthia Terrell, but she was involved in electoral politics and I was somewhat disdainful. They seemed disappointing and didn't seem to be really grappling with the core issues as I understood them. And I think what I learned from her is that there's something about elections that is really special, right? Which is that you engage with a full community of people, not just like-minded people, but you, you talk with people who have different perspectives, try to earn votes and support. And there's a chance for a like a broader conversation and ultimate broader impact. And of course, who wins has power and has a chance to actually really change policy directly. And through that, and through my own, I guess, belief in wanting us to go further than where we were in, in taking on big problems, 
sort of thought about what limits ourselves in elections. Why is it frustrating for someone like me? And um, actually had an uh, interesting family history where my um, great uncle, George Hallett, was the early leader of proportional representation movements in the United States. Un- un- unbeknownst to me, I, my father had mentioned him. I had met him, but had never had a conversation with him. And he he had died by the time that I got really interested in this. But turns out he had brought this to New York City. He had done all, all this work. And so I kind of like did a deep dive into his history as I sort of grappled with, with the challenges and of, of our current system. And I was out in Washington State and I got involved in a county charter effort in Thurston County, Washington, and said, well, you know, we should change winner-take-all elections. We should look at proportional representation and did a lot of reaching out pre-internet to who I might uh, find to support me in that conversation and found individuals, but not an organization. And then found some people in Cincinnati who were actually voting on it in 1991. And I said, well, let me just head over there. And so my wife and I headed over to Cincinnati, helped them out. It lost, tragically. It would have been fun to win that one. But out of that came a, a set of connections that led to us starting the group with a bunch of others in the summer of 92. And that's where Fair Vote came out. A founding meeting was in Cincinnati. And then we um, tried to try to take this conversation national, um, though that really means try to take it in a bunch of cities and then states and then national. It may feel niche, but at the end of the day, how you translate your votes into power is really fundamental and really completely changes what the electoral experience is. And if you can exchange the electoral experience and what the incentives are for, for legislators, you're kind of getting at the core of what we can do through the political process. And I think that in some ways that defines fair vote, trying to get to the core of how we can make this representative democracy work. I want to get you to fill in some of the holes in that story because you covered a lot of ground and it's pretty interesting to see for me to see how people land where they land. For one thing, you mentioned your wife was in electoral politics and that was influential. What was she doing in politics? Yeah, good question. She was an operative, a young operative. You know, we were in our 20s. I started fair voting in my 20s. She um, worked on a couple of congressional campaigns, then went to the Senate. She, she, she met a woman named Teresa Vilmaine, who was a, a well-connected operative and just kind of would tag along with Teresa. And so she worked on a, a U.S. Senate race in Wisconsin. She worked on Doug Wilder's campaign in 1989 in Virginia. And we were out in Washington State. She was working for Jolene Unsold, who was a congresswoman um, from that area, representing what's now a, a Republican district. And Jolene was a fascinating woman. I ended up getting involved in that campaign as a tag-along boyfriend and did opposition research. And I was pretty good at it. Um, I found some really tough stuff on the guy who was, the at that time, the best-funded challenger in America. He raised almost a million dollars. It seems like almost a joke, but that was, in fact, the biggest spending race of the 1990 cycle because Jolene had barely won in 1988. But we won pretty easily, in part because of some some good research that I found. But also, like that's zero sum politics, right? It's like that's not really what is you know you win, but you're not necessarily advancing things. So that that made me think also about what it means to have an affirmative politics and to be able to kind of push forward rather than just be against something. I noticed that you went to Haverford College and studied philosophy. Was there anything in that training that bears on how we are represented? Any of that uh, take place in that, or was that more, you know, a different kind of philosophy? Well, I guess I can answer it in two ways. One is I was in a hurry in a certain definition. So I left high school early. I left high school after my junior year. And then I went through Haverford in three years. I took three years off in the middle of that. So I wasn't always in a hurry, but I was sort of like trying to get through my education, frankly, because I wanted to like be a change agent. But I actually left Haverford in part to just go out and see what I could do to follow my commitment to try to take on challenges in the world. Um, but ultimately said, you know, I should go back to Haverford and finish. And I frankly, I was a bit of a pragmatic philosophy major in that there was a roadmap to finish in, in three years. That said, I really enjoyed it. I think that the exercise of trying to get to the central core of things, that whole quest of a philosopher to try to get to the really core way of thinking, I think is a, a really fascinating approach when you're trying to look at big problems in the world and try to try to think about what's really at the center of it. And I think it's a certain rigor of thinking that um, 
uh, maybe picked up at least to some degree. I did write my senior thesis on an environmental ethic and what it would be to 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 have a sort of a a grounding in that. I think that was a really interesting exercise. And don't quiz me on any big big philosophers, but I I, I do believe that I I I was helped in my long-term thinking by going through that exercise. I was fascinated to hear about George Hallett. It's not often that somebody who ends up running a multi-decade institution has a great uncle, was it, that went before them in that area, especially something as, as relatively rare. At what point in your life did you discover his? Was it, Were you already working on, on this yeah, I, I knew of George, and actually, it's an interesting way that that people can seed things in others that ultimately flower, you know. And so, my dad was very close to George Hallett, and they actually mostly about birding. Actually, if you go to Central Park, there's a part of Central Park that's blocked off, right, right at the bottom part of the park, um, and it's named after George Hallett. It's the George Hallett Sanctuary because he 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 was a sort of a a real civic leader in in New York, but a famous birder. And he and my dad, uh, my dad was sort of phenomenal that way. I never picked up that skill. But he did seed this conversation about, yeah, you know, there's a whole conversation to have about a democracy and proportional representation and win in one ear out, out the other, but it sort of lingered. So then when I was diving into this charter commission effort in Thurston County, Washington, I went to the library and found the key to democracy by George Hallett, right? <laughs> and, and, and then I said, oh my gosh. And I found all his monthly columns he had done, these proportional representation columns that he had in the National Municipal Review, now the National Civic Review. And he did it for like 50 years. And so, you know, there's a lot of backup, catch up reading to do. And I did that, that first, you know, three, four months of, of getting intrigued in this. Yeah, it was a fun journey. And I was just like, he had just died about three or four years before that. So I, but I never talked with him about it, but it was sort of fun to go over all the, the work that he had done. And they really had quite a run, you know, about uh, 24 cities went to the proportional form of ranked choice voting. Um, lots of conversations happening. He knew Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt actually helped bring proportional representation in New York City and through conversations that George had with him. Anyway, so it was all fun to kind of like live that a little vicariously by, by catching up in his old columns. Does it ever give you pause that here's a relative who spent uh, half a century working on it, but it never came fully to fruition. And now you're walking down uh, <laughs> a long road trying to make it happen also. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. You, we always can learn from experience. My belief is we we can finish the job this time. You know, he ran into a couple of really big obstacles. So in the wake of after World War II and the Cold War, the idea of a system representing political minorities sort of lost salience and in fact became challenging. So New York City had a, elected a communist and that was okay during World War II when the, the biggest enemies were fascists. But by the time of the Cold War, you know, suddenly that could be a vehicle to get rid of it. The system was electing African-Americans before the civil rights era really led us to embrace that as a goal rather than like, oh my gosh, you know, how's that happening? And, you know, in Cincinnati and some of the places where that was an early outcome. Um, and, you know, just almost an accident of history. If that had been happening 20 years later, people said, wow, this system is a really good way to actually allow people to elect preferred candidates. And this is the thing that still has been plaguing us, but I think we're finally dealing with is that he had to deal with the fact that you had to count the elections by hand. And that became increasingly antiquated as an idea. So you're talking about this modern way of voting that you have to count by hand. And it just made people think it was a throwback and weird. And and so anyway, he had a couple of things that, 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 that made it hard. But I think um, we're at a point in time, and we'll talk, I'm sure, more about this, where I think the case for these changes has been strong. I think right now the cases for them have moved from strong to almost just, it's just necessary, right? It's just like there's sort of a different sense of urgency that I think creates an opportunity that it goes beyond the opportunities that, that George had during his lifetime. I can see that. You've sort of touched on this, but can you go into more detail about sort of the founding story for Fair Vote? You mentioned that there's a number of people involved. Who are they? 
talk about like the mechanics of forming this organization in the beginning and what it took to get it rolling. For people who've grown up in the internet era, it's like this was before the internet. There was internet, but you didn't, there was no World Wide Web to kind of connect with people. So you you found people via, via like getting a good article. And I had an article in, in These Times magazine. Uh, Joel Blyfus has been a longtime fan of this and uh, someone that I knew. And he he published me back in 1991 about the Cincinnati campaign. And people would send you letters saying, I'm interested in hearing more about this. I did output letters to just authors of books and 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 others. This one guy named Aaron Leipart, who's just a terrific human being and a remarkable scholar. He's one of the you know, the greatest political scientists of all time. Um, but he wrote books about electoral systems. I reached out to him. He very thoughtfully thought to connect me with someone else who had sent a letter. So he sent me a copy of this person's letter um, named Matthew Casalato. And Matthew Casalato was a congressional aide um, who was interested in proportional representation. Um, I had just lost the Cincinnati, been part of this loss in Cincinnati, was kind of feeling, you know, oh, well, maybe this is going to be too hard to do. And getting this letter and saying, well, I'll, I'll go meet Matthew Casado. My parents lived in West Virginia at the time. I said, I'll drive in and, and go meet him. And then so we talked and he was getting something going. Coincidentally, there were three completely different efforts that were all called in some slight variation, Citizens for Proportional Representation, which if you do the acronym was CPR, Resuscitating Democracy. So we all had this little light bulb fun name and he had one. The Cincinnati campaign used that. And then we had started one out in Washington State using that name, too. And so there was something in the air. You know, we needed to resuscitate democracy. So Matthew, the Cincinnati people I work with, a guy named Bill Collins um, and some others in, in Cincinnati, a guy I had met out in Washington State named Stephen Hill. We all were sort of part of this effort. My wife, Cynthia, played a, played a nice role. I wanted to share one little story about the founding conference because it was just, uh, it, it's a, a name that a lot of people don't know, but his name is Ted Berry. Theodore Berry was the first African-American mayor of Cincinnati. At that time, he was about 90 um, and he was our first speaker. He kind of welcomed people to Cincinnati and he was such an eloquent, intriguing, thoughtful person who just set a tone of, of elevating the, the uh the enterprise um, and had this fascinating personal history with the system in Cincinnati kind of got us off to a great start. But it was interesting. It was sort of a collection of like, you know, these sort of random activists and academics and people who made this connection. We had, I think, people from like 16, 17 states made the journey to Cincinnati. We had no money. We had the, a vision, but we did not start off on uh, even second base as, as far as being well connected to money. We did have some interesting people. John Anderson, who had run for president in 1980, didn't make it to Cincinnati, but he was part of our, our first big meeting in D.C. and was our first uh, national advisory chair and ultimately chair of our board of directors for a number of years. Hendrik Hertzberg, the New Yorker uh, essayist, was, was a core early ally. Michael Lind as an intellectual ally. So we had the kind of an interesting collection of sort of intellects, academics, and activists who wanted to dig in. And so the early ways of working were essentially me and uh, what ultimately was the DC office kind of working with a, a lateral network of, of state activists who just started to make things happen and get conversations going. And we used to sort of talk about, you know, the thousand points of light metaphor that, that George Bush had used of just, you know, you need a, a point of light somewhere and suddenly things can start brightening and it really was that way it's just you know one interesting person who was committed could suddenly get a conversation going where there was state legislation or a charter commission would would take it on and then nationally i was pretty good at generating media interest and finding a way to make the conversation relevant and i think that was useful so we had a combination of kind of like some good media leveraging John Anderson, had a piece in the New York Times in the first month of our existence about ranked choice voting for president. That was when Ross Perot was running for president. Ross Perot was on C-SPAN and I called in and talked to him and asked him a question. And he said, that sounds like a good idea. You know, that, <laughs> I, I have to find that little clip sometime. And it just kind of built from there. And it, it took, you know, a number of years until we actually really had enough money to to have, you know, three staff even or something like that. But during that time, we actually, I think, really started to have an impact on the national conversation and then, then sort of built in sort of waves. There's a whole fair vote story, but ultimately did a lot more than just the electoral system. And interestingly, these last five years have, re have returned to the core roots 
um, because of, I think, this this urgency of the conversation today. I have a weird sort of overlap with you in this interest in that I did a senior project when I was an undergrad uh, around redistricting. And my second job in D.C. in 1990 was at Election Data Services, which you probably yeah. are aware of. Kimball Bryce. Uh, yep. Uh, Kim's actually, I interviewed him recently on this show just to catch up, and that was pretty fun. And And then I went to graduate school, and several of my first papers were in the area of redistricting. And I read uh, Leipart, who you mentioned, and other, you know, I kind of was reading the literature around this, came across you guys somewhere in that stretch. So I've seen your name since the beginning, I suspect. And and so it's kind of cool to to see you face-to-face, at least through the computer right now. Yeah. It was interesting, by the way, in the 90s, so we became the Center for Voting and Democracy. So we started off as Citizens for Proportional Representation. We found people just would take the word proportional representation or that term and put it through a certain lens that sort of put us in a box like, oh, you mean racial quotas or you mean like what they have in Italy or something, you know, like in the end, like, oh, that's not what we mean. So we actually pretty quickly became the Center for Voting and Democracy that we felt could define, like we could define ourselves. Um, and uh, but we also felt we needed to do more work to expose the problem. And back in the 90s, most people who thought a lot about electoral reform felt that money was buying elections. You know, it was sort of a money and politics kind of perspective. And of course, money is hugely influential, but we did a lot to say, you know what, the, the people matter and districting matters. And we did this report. We did dubious democracy in 1994, which sort of exposed lack of competition. And you may have stumbled across that because it has lots of good data. And then we did monopoly politics, where we started to project outcomes based only on the districts. And it was that... Um, Enterprise. So we invented the partisan index. The Cook Index was actually Fairboat was a Rob Ritchie little innovation. And then Charlie Cook wrote about it. And then he sort of did a little little tweak to it and then called it the partisan voting index, which is fine. But but it is off, but but also was a way of saying, look, there's a baseline way that you can very pretty simply measure who has an edge in a district. And in this modern era, this decline in ticket splitting, that is determinative. And the money doesn't matter. It's 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 districting, it's it's the people, but really. People say, oh, the problem is redistricting. We say, no, the problem is districting, right, is, is, is that you just have these geographic units where only one, one, one person can win. And I think that was like the early effort that we were trying to kind of show that. But it's interesting, that sort of philosophical quest of getting at the core of things. The Center for Voting and Democracy had created the space for say, well, let's look at the Electoral College. You know, let's look at voter registration and let's, let's get to the core and that and let's see if we can do something about it. And that combination actually allowed us to trigger, you know, the national popular vote plan for president, which wasn't our idea, but we did a lot to elevate it. Automatic voter registration instead of only election day registration, and then taking the idea of redistricting reform and sort of turning it into this conversation about the electoral system itself, which is still an incomplete enterprise. And really like, can you have more than two candidates and not have a dysfunctional election system is, you know, this is the ranked choice voting conversation, which has just been um, intriguing that it's how it's finally taking off. But it's such a sort of straightforward concept in a certain way. I think that very straightforwardness should allow us to ultimately succeed. But it, but it, that, that's been trying to kind of get to the core of, of a problem as well. Tell me a little more about building the organization. You mentioned you got up to maybe three paid people, but where are you now and what was the path to kind of building an institution that that's had duration and now is more substantial? Well, it's interesting. I, I prioritize this or bringing my passion to the work and to the opportunities for change more than fundraising. So I was the executive director and raised money, but always raised money when I had time. It is interesting because I now work in a field where some people in a very smart way, say, I'm going to prioritize raising money and then you can do more work, right? <laughs> and But that's not something that Fairboat really did for a long time. An easy way to describe a work which people often did, well, they really play above their their pay grade or, you know, and, and, and that was because we would just get passionate people who would come and just throw themselves into it. But we didn't work into in, a, in an actual office um, until seven years in, 1999. I was living out here in Tacoma Park, and and we just found an office space here. The ebb and flow was essentially tied to the stock market cycle. So we sort of grew from 99 to 2002, 
there was a stock market decline and we were, I would say, kind of a, a last hired, first fired entity for, for some of the foundations that were starting to support us. Like, well, you're doing interesting work, but it's just doesn't feel as core as, 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 you know, it's a front burner or something. Right. So hard to keep you in our, our, our system. And, um, and that actually happened then. So we went from having like nine staff, which was exciting in, in 2002, back to just two um, and uh, within a year. But we made this really fun decision to not get smaller, but to be more ambitious. And so we had this huge conference, the Claim Democracy Conference at the end of 2003, where Rashad Robinson, a young uh, activist, I've hired him out of uh, uh, being a teacher, you know, and he's now the, you know, the head of Color of Change and a great, a great leader. He did a great job pulling this conference together. And we, you know, elevated the idea of a right to vote in the Constitution and, you know, had had a, had a major deal at the D.C. Convention Center and sort of started growing again with this broader agenda of a right to vote in the Constitution, national popular vote plan, automatic vote registration and proportional voting and ranked choice voting. And in that night, those 2000s, we had a, a, a number of young staff with us who would sort of generally come to us out of college. We sort of institutionalized that by, by having a program where we just take lots of applicants to come as democracy fellows and pick the best of the lot and keep the ones who really worked well. And, you know, from that kind of made a lot of things happen. But then 2008 and that stock market decline, we once again got really small and then we were growing sort of incrementally. And then 2013, 2014, I think what really began to happen then is that the, the definition of the problem became not something that outsiders thought was important, but actually people from within the system thought it was important. And I think that it's not people just wanting third parties who, who want these electoral changes. It's actually people who are trying to make the current system work very much at the center of it, who have been experiencing its deterioration. And uh, so we started to get like Hewlett Foundation and Arnold Ventures came in, Arnold Foundation, um, and that was sort of 2014, 15. And then ranked choice voting had this big trailblazing win in Maine in 2016. And it's like, oh, it's not just a theoretical idea that wins in liberal cities or something. This is something that actually can can win in statewide. And I think it twinned with the election of Donald Trump and a kind of a conversation about our democracy led to a lot of people taking a new look at it and a lot of activists getting involved and a lot of funders starting to take a look. And so we built on that. We had a lot of transitional learning as an organization to learn from being the small, scrappy organization that worked one way to one where you hire senior people who you hope to work with you for years to come. And, you know, like like kind of a different way of organizing ourselves. I think we've settled into that new, bigger, impactful reality. Um, I sit back with some degree of shock and think that this year's budget is bigger than our first 20 years of spending combined. But I think it also means I have a terrific crew of people. We have about 25 people. We'll have uh, 30 by the end of the summer. Um, that will be sort of what will be for a little while. But I think we're also, you know, talking about the major national change and fair vote not being the only player. Now there's a lot of other groups working in this space too, and we all need to row together. Um, but it is um, something where we can quite practically talk about what that means and the actual then we need to get a lot bigger or this movement needs to keep getting a lot bigger and so that's something that's pivoted my own time you know I, I i think a lot more about those needs and then just having more you know senior program staff that can take over the day-to-day -day work of making the change happen on the ground and and uh that's been fun to 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 help make happen our democracy has always been imperfect and challenged uh in voting, certainly in 2000 in the presidential race, like everyone kind of focused on on that. And we passed the Help America Vote Act and uh, a lot a lot of changes. But there's something that feels different about the time of Trump. When you have somebody who pushed the narrative that he did in the run up to both of his national elections and then pushed the January 6th uh, insurrection and, and is still acting like the democracy is broken and persuading a lot of people, at least on his side, that he's right. How much does that play into the, the sort of sense of urgency that you mentioned earlier around making these reforms? And how much does this, the remedies that you've been advocating for a long time, 
mesh with the problem that we have right now? I think they mesh together well, though I think people don't always see the problem the same way. One key point for us is that Donald Trump is a symptom more than a cause. I think people can personalize the the actions and think of the cause, and and that's not to excuse the behavior um, when when people are acting in a way that is undercutting our basics of democracy. But I think it also is reflection of like if you go back to the Republican presidential debates in 2016 that victory for Trump came out of a certain dialogue that you could just see happening, that he was being able to, to, to be successful. And there already was a certain climate. And, and, and where did that come from? And why, why do the parties both sort of fear and despise and, and each other to the degree that they do? And that's pre-Trump. The two parties, zero-sum politics that we have kind of creates direct political incentives that our operatives know how to really manipulate better and better where you define the other as the other and and make them scary and make people in, say, congressional elections not think of all politics as local, but just think of each person as part of the other team that that is going to, you know, take things away from you and do things that scare you. So we've gotten to this point where it's very much us versus them. And it's a, it's a matter of sort of outdoing people on your team to be even more against the other side almost becomes this ratcheting up of, of that, that the system incentivizes and, 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 and then they get rewarded for it. If, if they're out of power, you know, it's like blocking everything the other side can do. And then, you know, getting to, you know, just, just getting people to line up when it's your turn and, and then try to just um, get what you can do when you're running things. And, and, and it's very much against the, the kind of the Madisonian, structures we have in the constitution where we we do have all these overlapping uh, institutions and and a uh, tradition of the political parties finding ways to work together at least individuals within it there's a whole history of 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 a positive sense of factions within the major parties that make the definition of the two-party system much more complicated than just two homogeneous parties but the current electoral system and the incentives and how we operationalize it sort of pushes it in that 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 way. And then so a Donald Trump can come out of that environment and succeed in it because of the incentives that have been created within it. And so I think that if we don't deal with those core incentives, then we're just going to have repetition of the problem, probably getting worse. And I think um, that's what more and more people are seeing. So we've got to get out of zero sum politics. We have to have a politics of choice that allows more than two we have to have a fair reflection of the spectrum of differences that are very real within us that are more nuanced than just red versus blue, one side versus the other. And you can't do that within a single choice, single member district. It's really hard to do that within the current electoral system that we have. And that's that's the conversation that I think we're creating where we we need to allow more than two choices we need to ultimately allow the same people living in one place to have more than one representative that can reveal the differences that exist among neighbors and among you know parts of the country. We, we don't all think alike. And that creates the reason for ranked choice voting and proportional voting. Back when I was like, like in grad school, I would hear the argument that uh, that the two-party system, winner-take-all voting, was actually a moderating influence that compared to say a proportional system where you might have very minority ideas represented like communist party, like you mentioned, like, you know, like you'd look across at different countries and you'd see slivers of the electorate represented that you wouldn't theoretically see here. Right. The system wasn't much different structurally in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, why is there a structural argument now that the system doesn't moderate things as it is? What's changed? Well, I'd say, you know, it, I'll, I'll share one thing, which is that I, you know, very passionately believed in the need for reform in 92 based on realities that remain true for a lot of people from that perspective. Like, say, if someone is a, like my my daughter is 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 very much involved in the climate change movement and just once, once 
the conversation would be more further along than it is, right? And can feel very frustrated at the, the kind of electoral politics of compromise and not having the sort of passion reflected. And what a proportional representation advocate would say, you know, even if this voice comes from within the Democratic Party, could be within the Republican Party, but it could be a smaller party, but it's someone who is articulating their passion and kind of allowing that to be brought into politics and ultimately find a way to maybe move the center. So it's not about like taking power, but sometimes can, you can influence power. You, you are, can transform the conversation. That argument would, if I understand it, would apply to an ant, you know, a, a climate denial party, right? Yeah, no, it's sort of like why John Stuart Mill is a big fan of this. It's like let's have let's have real dialogue. Let let let's really air out what 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 is important, and 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 ultimately that actually allows us to to define a, a way forward, and that it's better to express views than try to to marginalize them, and that if they're represented in kind of proportion to their support, that's okay. It's more dangerous to start leaving people out of the room because at the end of the day you may end up with a small, relatively small faction having way too much power. And that's sort of the proportional representation response to, you know, winner take all as, as a moderating force. But here's, here's what's different today is that I think what happened in the 90s and 2000s and really had this huge impact on how representation happens in the United States. So the point I was saying was true then, I think is true now. But what's different is that we have learned how to run elections within the current rules in such a way that they don't work. They can't deliver the outcomes the way that I think maybe they they did in the past. They were never good about representing racial minorities fairly. They were never good about kind of representing political uh, minority views well. But we handled that to, to whatever degree that one says and one did when we didn't represent racial minorities well. But now that we essentially can run elections where we can whip up the partisan majority, so you can define a more cohesive partisan majority, which is us versus them. It's like, you know, it's like blue team versus red team. And voters become more fixed in that reality. You just need to do the dog whistles and the points about, you know, the dangers of the other side, what Kevin McCarthy would do and what Nancy Pelosi would do and what Donald Trump does and what Joe Biden does to be able to say that person's on the other team. And here's the here's the code that I can trigger in you that you will no longer consider the people based on who they are, but just which team that they're on. We've learned how to run that kind of campaign really well. And the money comes in. There's no one that can be immune from money coming in and kind of creating the triggers. So essentially, partisan majorities, relatively slim ones, 54 to 46 is a relatively slim partisan majority. If you filled up, you know, a football field with 100 people and the 54 were on one team and 46 on the other, you'd see a lot of both sides, but one side has more. In our current winner-take-all system, the way we can whip up um, voters, it becomes a safe seat, essentially. 56 becomes absolutely safe. So you essentially win elections by, by dividing and polarizing. And so the winner-take-all single-member district system is just in a cycle where, where it becomes easier and easier to do that, but then the outcomes become more and more based on that incentive and therefore is breaking the system. We have to sort of crack that code, right? We, we have to allow nuance and sort of the differences that sort of exist within us to be expressed politically and to be allow people to kind of put those views forward, to have a chance to win w- with the spectrum of views. And so you break down the binary because when, 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 when we're in this binary, us versus them, it's just zero sum politics. And, and we're in a cycle, you know, that, that Lee Drutman has called the doom loop, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's essentially a cycle that is tied to grounded in the electoral system, grounded in the way that the electoral system kind of pushes in into this very simple political choice. I mean, the, the argument that's, ma- that's ma- been most persuasive to me has been that it's the party primary dominated by the wings of each party that, that politicians cater to, and that by changing the system, essentially, from you got to win a majority of your party to you have to win a majority of the district 
that you end up with more moderate people. To me, that's been the most persuasive argument for changing the kind of structural underpinnings. Yeah, well, if it only was about the primaries, so so essentially to me, you know, there, there's a good report done by United America called the primary problem. And the primary problem to me is an important symptom of the bigger problem, which is the general election problem. If, if we will live in a situation where general elections don't matter, you know, if 93% of congressional seats are safe and, you know, 40 states in the presidential election are essentially safe. That's the problem, right? Like all the people that live in those safe seats are marginalized. And we're essentially accepting that how, whoever gets nominated with the majority side is going to win. When that's true, then yes, the nomination process becomes really important. In other countries, the nomination process is not governed by the government at all, right? Like we're the only country in the world that gets involved in primary elections. That's freedom of association stuff. That's like people coming together, defining their interests and putting forth people to represent them. And the idea of the government going in and sort of spending a lot of time regulating that is foreign to other countries. <laughs> Interestingly, not here, but it's a result that goes back a, a century of treating the general election problem as one about primaries. I am sympathetic with those that focus on primaries in a general sense because they often are trying to get at a core problem and they're trying to do something better for voters. But I don't think it's getting at the core, which is the general election problem, right? So so that if we have general elections that are truly competitive and you have real choices and you can get fair representation, then how parties put forward candidates becomes secondary because the general election voter gets to sort it out and they have real choices and they have you know, different incentives. I should say that we haven't really, you know, you probably had other uh, guests who've talked about what ranks was voting in. But at the end of the day, it's just a ballot where you get to rank candidates rather than vote for a single pick. And your ballot is sort of thinks for you. It goes all in for your first choice. But if your first choice, your ballot can't be effective, it'll go to your second choice and they'll go to your third choice. That's all it is. But that creates incentives that are are really interesting as far as candidates talking to voters and voters learning about more candidates, but also it's just a, a helpful instrument to just help to solve problems. Like, it, you know, it's allowing to replace runoff elections. It's allowing to handle crowded uh, primary fields. It's a way to work with primary reform solutions, like, say, the Alaska approach of, like, you know, the top four primary that they're implementing this year for the first time. But at the end of the day, we have to have general elections where your participation as a voter matters no matter where you live and that that you have real choices and there's a fair reflection of those choices in our legislatures. And if, and if we can get at that point, we actually get at the core of what's broken. That's at the end of the day, in some, <laughs> you know, the primary election problem is the general election problem. Can you tell me a little bit more about the, the ecosystem of electoral reformers that you're a longtime leader in, like who else are the key players and what are the sort of distinctions among what each of you are pushing for? And how do you, like you said earlier, row together? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, there's some different communities that don't all operate in the same room. I, I would say this, where fair vote is most focused for ourselves going forward in our own time and advocacy is is figuring out a way to win legislatively, meaning that with elected officials, with political parties, with key stakeholders in the current system, bringing them on board with the need for reform. And that is challenging because, of course, you know, it's a trope to say, well, who's going to change the rules that got them in office? But at the same time, if you're not able to do that, then you're always starting off behind and, and in a very vulnerable position to those in power. You can win a ballot measure, but those affected by the ballot measure can then try to weaken it and get rid of it and so on. And ultimately, you've got to figure out a way to enlist those in power to be on your side. And we think there's ways to do that. Almost every city using ranked choice voting, it's up to more than 50, has gone through a city council or a charter commission appointed by the city council or part of that political establishment in that community. And we think there's arguments to kind of move it forward. There's groups that do work kind of in that spirit, but not on electoral system reform, on voting rights, there's like big voting rights coalitions that are out there protecting voter access and voter registration reform. And and we've had some historic dealings with them, you know, the groups like Brennan Center and Advancement Project and the big legal defense funds in, in our voting rights work. 
They are fighting a lot of uh, front burner fires right now as far as impact on voter access, but there is a relationship and a conversation, sort of a shared belief and a commitment to the right to vote and, and protection of that right. Then there's those who we work most commonly with in a day-to-day way that are thinking about some variation of the primary problem are, are dealing with how voters are, are, are marginalized and the incentives are in the wrong direction. So you've got you know, a, a really uh, valuable player in our space called Unite America, led by Nick Triano, that that did that report on the primary problem and has generated a lot of funds for the movement and is is really trying to 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 think through a politics. I mean, I would let them define themselves, but but a lot of it is is often through a, a, a sense of, of of rebuilding a, a lost political center and some definition of that through uh, open primaries and John Updike um, that that does that work. Um, and represent us, um, which has worked on multiple uh, sort of approaches to our politics, but does does include a whole component about um, you know finding ways to empower um, voters in in primaries and general elections. There's a fun and exciting group of state players that we enjoy working with that are um, some version of fair vote, you know, in its early years, but they're in state after state these days. There's a group called Rank the Vote that works nationally, kind of a new player on the scene, but came out of the Massachusetts campaign for ranked voting, and they've taken those lessons nationally that are, are trying to help such groups. We work regularly with them. There's a couple of big associations. There's the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. There's the Bridge Alliance. There, there's these, these, these coalitions that are trying to kind of convene groups in, um, in sort of common, common purpose toward these changes. I think what FairVote wants to do, given that focus on legislative strategies, is sort of take that energy and those allies, combining them with some of the traditional voting rights, campaign finance allies, and bring in major constituency groups that have other things on their mind, but at the end of the day are blocked in their work through the challenges of the current electoral system. And that's where you can combine all those forces to, you know, not always do exactly the same thing together, but to be at least on a common page when there's opportunities for change. And and we're not there yet for, for having all those people at a common table, but there's, but it's a lot closer to that than it used to be. It's interesting. I, I, as you kind of survey that there's a number of these folks that I've had as guests on the show over time, Nick Traiano and John Updike and recently Nathan Lockwood and on, another group that you didn't mention is the one that Catherine Gale started, uh, Institute for Political Innovation. I wonder how, how they fit in in your mind, because they don't really originally come from the political world, but they talk about large amounts of money and uh, and really going after this. Are they on your radar as an ally, or does what they're saying make sense? Well, I respect them a lot. I I had early conversations with Catherine about the idea, say, of the top four form of ranked choice voting as an alternative to the top two primary, which is what California has. And, you know, part of my case for that was we need a system that creates positive incentives in the general election. She she was interested in that and ultimately has has sort of settled on a package that does change both primaries and the general election. It doesn't have to be one or the other, right? And they have an approach that I know they're trying to advance legislatively. My belief is that could happen. I think it's a lot more likely to happen via ballot measures and as a somewhat populist tool where you're trying to make this case against the current system. And it's obviously good, a lot of good things to say about the current system being problematic. But I would say our big lift so, so I am um, appreciative of what the final five top four proposal tries to do. In fact, that was a fair vote innovation about a decade ago in response to California to say, well, here's a better way to do it. Advance more than two um, and then use ranked voting. But it is a lift. It is something that is a challenge to get the major parties to come along with. I am more interested for fair vote in having us focus on just winning ranked voting as, you know, as they did in Maine without necessarily affecting the primaries. It's an important add-on to primary elections. It's an important add-on to general elections. It solves problems. It's a good change, and it advances a way of thinking and voting that actually allows this bigger conversation to happen about other changes. 
IPI wants to have that conversation being about the final five model, and we want to have it be about changing winner-take-all elections to the Fair Representation Act. And they they can coexist, and and so we we do coexist with IPI. I just think it's sort of a different strategic focus where we're particularly interested in legislative strategies and ultimately getting to changing winner-take-all elections, and they're, for now at least, more uh, likely to move in ballot measure initiative strategies and their final solution keeps winner take all elections, just just a different form of them. That's something that we'll just you know we'll sort out as people move forward. And I hope I hope they they make some progress. And um, but I know that we're making some progress. I'm pretty pleased with 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 how how our efforts are being defined. I feel a, an urgency personally around reforms to the Electoral College Act around some of the moves that states are making to allow votes to get overridden by the state legislatures, potentially other issues around laws that are making it harder to vote, like the Texas experiment seems like a disaster so far in terms of the number of people whose ballots are getting invalidated, a lot of things like that going on. Where are we in Congress, in the state legislatures, and externally with respect to actually achieving significant reforms before, say, the midterms? Yeah. We are fully appreciative of the fact that that ranked voting and proportional voting aren't the only conversations to have about our system. In fact, Fair Vote did a lot of work on these other issues. I do feel they are singularly important and that the pathway to changing them is before us and something we, we want to get done over the next five, six, seven years. But what about next year and or this November and so on? There was a big conversation in Congress about restoring the power of the Voting Rights Act with the John Lewis bill. There was the Freedom to Vote Act to try to do a whole number of, of changes involving sort of national standards and, and, and national approaches to voter access and redistricting. That was not able to get through the the filibuster in the Senate. I think there's an expectation that that will not happen in this Congress. I do feel that this Congress can put a lot of money into the system in actually a very helpful way. And Joe Biden's budget that has been introduced this spring does allocate a lot of dollars to just help counties and states run elections. And I think that can actually really help in voter access issues with kind of appropriate definitions. Um, So that's one thing that can happen nationally. Um, I've done a lot of work on the the National Popular Vote Plan on the Electoral College, which is, while changing the way we vote for president so that whoever wins the most popular votes across all 50 states is always elected, that is a state-by-state enterprise, may have a a role in Congress, it may not. There's sort of a question about whether Congress needs to approve this state-by-state plan that is passed in you know 15 states and and uh, DC, but it's one that um, is really going to be defined by the number of states passing it, reflecting a majority of the country's votes in the electoral college, and that's remains a state by state work. It's been kind of a fun, long term effort that I think if that 2016 election had been kind of a normal election where say the electoral college produced a victory for Hillary Clinton which it almost did and, and was sort of expected to do. If that had happened, I think the National Popular Vote Plan probably would have passed by now because it, it was one that was just about to get, to have the true bipartisan support it actually has among individual state legislators to, to be reflected in, in passage in more states. It is now a pretty partisan issue. So it has to be addressed on a state-by-state level in a climate where the parties are kind of engaging with it quite differently. And so it, it is one that I think still is on a righteous path, and you'll just have to see how long it takes. I talked to a guy named John Coza who was pushing that. Is that the, the version that you're talking Koza about? Yeah, yeah, and I'm actually one of his co-authors for his book, Every Vote Equal, and that's something that we um, embraced in late t- 2004 and, and um, started working on our first state of that passed it was Maryland, where our former board member, Jamie Raskin, had just been elected to the state Senate. And that was one of his first bills that he was able to pass through in Maryland. And so it, 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 it's, it's, it started winning in 2007 and it's kind of been, been operating sort of ever since. We'll have to sort of break through that climate. It may have to ultimately go to the initiative to um, win. But, you know, I think the problems of the current electoral college system are intense and really worth addressing. 
And, you know, ultimately, I think actually fit nicely with ranked choice voting. So, you know, the world that I want to be in in 10 years from now is we have a national popular vote for president. We have ranked choice voting built into that. Those can be done statutorily. We change winner-take-all elections for Congress with the Fair Representation Act, which is a bill in Congress to, 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 to do that. That's also statutory. And that, you know, come the 20, sort of 32 election, every American voter, at least those living in the states in D.C., will be able to vote in elections that matter for president and for Congress. And you will have a Congress that kind of more fully reflects what we think and who we are. And that, I think, remains doable for 10 years. There's a lot of work to do on other issues, voter registration, voter access changes, money in politics. And we all have to figure out ways to support each other's work. But but that's sort of the fair vote enterprise in that particular is that kind of like 2032 vision of of, of what, what politics looks like differently. It would be a nice vision. It it feels to me like we're going the other direction. Like the momentum is on the side of disrupting the vote and not in reforming the Electoral Count Act or something and undermining elections and with disinformation. And what's giving you optimism about uh, this this vision? Yeah. Well, I think one is that, yes, the current system is facing really intense challenges and we have to mobilize and address them. But it is also exposing the problem in a very public way, you know, like the Band-Aid is torn off. It's not something you can just cover over and think it can wait sort of another day. And so big changes actually happen out of crisis. It's not a linear path, but it is a path that's moving. I'll say with just ranked voting, um, we have seen a really terrific progress over the last five years. I mean, so, you know, back in uh, October 2016, you know, no, no states were using it. Now we have two states using it for electoral college and, and congressional elections. We had five states in the Democratic Party use it for their uh, presidential nomination process in 2020. More will will use it in 2024. Republicans used it to to pick Glenn Youngkin to be their nominee in Virginia, and they're using it again in some congressional nominations. And um, you know, and the number of cities has gone from you know about a dozen five six years ago to more than 50. And we really believe that um, that number can can by a multiple of 10 can get up to more than 500 within just four years with this sort of growing state network that is kind of looking for ways to make changes. And it can only happen because it actually enlists allies in legislatures, in city councils, kind of ready to do this. One of my things I say, but I think it's true, is, you know, this is the the most popular nonpartisan electoral reform in the country right now for ranked choice voting. And that certainly gives me optimism after a lot of years of working on it. And then I think the the winner-take-all problem, which is this, this redistricting issue and the challenge of, of why government doesn't work, why Congress is as broken as, as it is, there's, there's a growing appreciation of that connection. And I think that combined with, you know, that coalition of reform groups we talked about earlier are kind of being, being more clearly at the same table. Those are the things that it takes to get big national change. It feels like the 2020s are our big national change decade. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that you wish I had? One of the uh, areas of challenge for us also is is about racial equity and, and about how we move forward as a multiracial democracy. And I think that when you step back from that question and say, what does it mean for a successful multiracial democracy is that finding ways for have shared representation and representing more people more more fully is so intrinsic to that definition. We've tried to make a multiracial democracy work within a winner-take-all system by, by creating opportunities for racial minority voters to elect candidates of choice when they're in the majority. We say, well, most racial minorities won't be able to elect candidates of choice, but if we can create you know, majority minority districts to go and fix the winner take all system to work for them versus saying, you know what, this is sort of the Lonnie Guinier conversation that she was trying to have 30 years ago. What we really need to do is like rethink the idea of how you earn representation in the first place. One of the really transformative aspects of the Fair Representation Act, which is this idea of taking our congressional election system for, you know, only having one person representing each district to more than one, you know, bigger districts with more representatives and then using a fair election system, we, we would uh, use a ranked choice system where 
like-minded voters within that district can earn their fair share of seats, right? So you have a five-seat district, about 20% of voters can elect one out of five. That's the basic principle. Relatively modest district, so you're not like blowing up representation to just anyone, but the ranked choice feature allows, even if your first choice doesn't win, your ballot goes to your second choice, you can still vote for whomever you want on the first round and really feel that you're connected to, to that choice, but have a compromise that can also win. You can have this sort of shared representation dynamic. So you go, say, to the deep South states, and every Black voter and every white voter would likely be able to be represented and would be represented by representatives of, who are both African-American and white in, in, in uh, the same area. And you would have more women winning, which is a focus for what my wife seeks um, with her group, Represent Women. And you would just essentially create fluid means to represent who we are as a people. And I think successfully being a multiracial democracy is probably a, a right at the core of being a successful democracy at all. And I think winner-take-all elections are, are an incredible challenge for that. So one of the core arguments for why, why we need to take on the, the winner-take-all system itself. Well, it's been uh, an honor to talk to you. Uh, is there anything else you want to say? No, I know. I, we bounced around a lot of things. I hope you can weave it all together in something coherent. But uh, that was fun. And I uh, don't usually talk about the history that way, too. So, so that, was, that was interesting to get into. So Yeah. Well, th- yeah. well thank you much. That was Rob Ritchie. Rob is at fairvote.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.